Good morning. Shabbat Shalom. What a bunch of grumpy people. What I want to do is talk to you about confidence, because it seems like some of you lack it right now. So let's talk about that. Lots of prayers about the inauguration and all that kind of stuff. There's some interesting things about it. Most of you have observed this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. No ordinary Americans attended. Ordinary Americans were represented by these little flags that real estate people put up on the curb on the 4th of July. That's weird. Of course, as you were talking in your prayers, there's a widespread belief that the election wasn't fair. And I completely understand that. The other thing that was really interesting is there isn't any joy among the winners. There's no celebration. You didn't have the normal balls that you have in Washington. In fact, you had people rioting in Portland because they won. How weird is that? You throw a riot because you win, right? And the winners are angry with anybody who had the temerity to oppose them. That's all weird. It isn't, wow, we had a hard-fought election, we won, everybody go shake hands, and let's move on. No, that's not what's going on at all. It's weird. One of the things that I am firmly convinced of, and God knows and I don't, the fact that I'm convinced of it doesn't mean much of anything, I believe God is dealing with the United States. I can remember 20 years ago, I was listening to a radio teacher and his comment was, if God doesn't chasten the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So the idea that God is dealing with us and things are not going the way we would like to have them go, that's the way it is. One of the things that's happening as, as you look at the cabinet that's being put together, I have never seen such a collection of weirdos. And I don't get the impression that they're competent. I get the impression that they were picked to check a box. I'm sorry, but that's weird. One of the things that's happening is they are announcing all this plan, but it isn't clear to me that they have the competence to pull any of them off. There was an article in the New York Times saying, all right, now that this new administration is in there, they got to get back to the robust economy that we had before the pandemic. I'm going to tell you folks, they don't know how to do that. It's not something that they're going to be competent to do. So it's, it's going to be an interesting time. The other thing is, I am of the opinion that liberalism has peaked. Now, liberalism actually starts back in the 1500s, has been gradually moving forward and taking over the thought so that it's the dominant thought form now. A hundred and some years ago, Marxism was fresh and exciting, and everybody was, wow, look at this new philosophy. It's over a hundred years old. There isn't anybody that's excited about it anymore. I mean, you've got people that are doing it, and now it's sort of become a vehicle for power, whereas when it first started off, it was idealistic, and we're going to make the world a better place, and this is better for all humanity, and all that kind of thing. That kind of an attitude was the thing that propelled it in the late 19th century. That's what got it going. That attitude isn't there anymore. Now it's just sort of a tired, okay, this is how we're going to seize power and so forth. But that's not the attitude and that's not the spirit 
of a winning and robust movement. You know, you got this doddering old fool. In fact, one of the funny memes I saw is resident, the P is silent. I kind of like that. But seriously, I mean, he's got to be sort of moved around on a hand truck and put where he needs to be put. What you're seeing is sort of the last gasp that something is going to change. I don't know what it's going to be. I'm not a prophet. Don't play one on TV. But something is going to change. And I don't know where we're going next, but it's going to be different. So I will suggest that we actually fall back, relax, take a breath, and look at what God's promises are. Let's start there. Let's look at what God has promised. We've got the Word, and He's got written down promises and so forth, so let's take a look at what they actually are. And I'm going to talk about them in three phases. Promises to Israel, promises to Gentiles or the church, and then promises to individuals. And those are very different. So as you're reading the Bible and you see this glowing promise, you need to figure out who it's made to. Because what happens is people look at these glowing promises. I want that promise of God. Well, it may not be aimed at you. They're all true. They're all promises of God. God is going to work them through. But don't grab a promise that was made to somebody else and then get all grumpy and disappointed when it doesn't happen for you. So God makes promises to Israel. God promises that they're going to be a nation of priests. God promises that they're his chosen people. God promises that he is going to take care of them and they are never going to perish. Those are all things that are true. God also promises, I have a covenant with you folks. And the covenant has blessings and the covenant has a downside if you don't keep up your side of the covenant. Very clear in scripture, starting back in Deuteronomy. there's, There's no question about it. And sure enough, As Israel ceases to keep its promises periodically, they go up and down, God reaches in, grabs them by the stacking swivel and straightens them back out, or sends them off into exile where exile gets them straightened out. And then they come back and God blesses them again until the cycle changes and off they go again. But God has promised that they will be forever his chosen people and they are his sons. Those are all promises God made to Israel. And by the way, one of the hallmarks of what's known as replacement theology is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the church looks at all those glowing promises and says, those are ours, and you know all those curses, that belongs to the Jews. And as I am very fond of saying, there's a Hebrew word for that. It's called baloney. That is not true. Those are promises for Israel, Period. The church, or Gentiles, also have a place in the kingdom of God. And what Yeshua did is he secured that place for Gentiles. It says clear back in the Torah that the goal here on God's part is to get everybody, bring us all in. That's the goal. Yeshua made that possible for all of us to come in and for all of us who believe to become sons and daughters of God. 
That's a promise to Gentiles. That is not a promise to Jews because they already are. They are by virtue of the covenant that he made with them at Sinai. This is for Gentiles, for us, or for those of us who are Gentiles, or for those of us who don't know any better. So the promise to Gentiles is if we decide to join the kingdom of God by turning to Yeshua and saying, you are our Lord and our King, and we believe that you were born of a virgin, that you died on the cross and you rose again, and by that resurrection our sins are forgiven. You believe all that and you move on that, you become a member of the kingdom of God and you become a son or a daughter of God. That's a promise to the Gentiles. Now one of the things that you'll hear from people who don't know much better is, well, we're all children of God. And again, I'll go back to my Hebrew word, that's baloney. In order to be a child of God, you have to turn to Yeshua and you have to say, you are my king and my savior. I accept you. If you don't do that, you are not a child of God. Again, that's just scripture. Not doing anything weird here. So the church as an organization is different than the church as individuals. And your scripture for that, by the way, is Revelation 2 and 3. God, Yeshua, writes letters to churches as organizations. Churches at Ephesus, the church of Thyatira, and so forth. He's writing to an organization. And he's saying two things, depending on what the status of the church is. You're doing all this okay. That we got a problem with. You need to get that straightened out. Or I will, and there are various sanctions listed. I'll take away your candlestick or, you know, whatever. That, that varies by church. But in every case, in those letters, he says, to the one who overcomes... Notice he doesn't say to the church who overcomes, to the one who overcomes. So there are people in those churches who will not partake in the problems that that church is exhibiting. Those are the ones who overcome. And again, there are promises made to those people as individuals. That's different than the promises made to the church as an organization. Then we come down to promises to you individuals, not as members of a body, but as individuals. Well, everybody here, I am lightheartedly assuming, has accepted Yeshua as his king and his savior. In that case, there are promises to you as a child of God. And oh, by the way, those promises include you get out of this alive, which is to say eternal life, what they don't include is bunnies, rainbows, and unicorns. That's not one of the promises. What happens to individuals is God says, you are mine, you are in the palm of my hand, but there may be things that happen to you in this physical world that are going to be terribly unpleasant. I'm not promising you that things couldn't get unpleasant as an individual. And one of the things that I have with some preachers is they make all these glowing, wild promises and they sort of mix everything up and they mislead people. God's word's very clear. My poster child for this is Daniel. 
Daniel was a righteous man. Daniel is one of only three people in the Bible about which nothing negative is ever written. Daniel, Joseph, and Yeshua are the only three in the Bible that do not get any negative ink. Daniel grew up in Babylon because Israel messed up, went into apostasy, and God says, ah, now out of the pool, everybody off to Babylon to include Daniel. So Daniel didn't get spared Babylon simply because he was righteous. Everybody understand what the point I'm making? Figure out who the promises are given to, figure out which promises apply to you, and live your life accordingly. And do not try and appropriate promises that are for somebody else and then get all grumpy and bummed out when it doesn't go the way you're expecting. Now, back to our political situation. One of the things I found very fascinating about the inauguration stuff was the flamboyant display of Catholicism. Biden went to a mass. He may have gone to three or four of them, for all I know. He may have gotten drunk on communion wine, for all I know. But he just made a really big deal about going to mass. Well, God bless the Catholic Church because there are overcomers in the Catholic Church. Remember, I said individuals and organizations. But as I look at that organization worldwide, I find it to be either corrupt or neutered. So you have people who are in flagrant violation of the teachings of that organization who are accepted into that organization with open arms by the clergy. I just found that really fascinating that that was a big part of the day of the inauguration was this overt display of worship, quote-unquote. And one of the things that that shows, I've got to say this tactfully as I can, one of the things people do is they want to belong. We all do. And that applies to organizations. As most of you know, I had an unfortunate first marriage and was divorced. But my first wife was Jewish. And we were driving somewhere, and I was in the car with my father-in-law. And some guys from his synagogue came up to the car and said, Oh, got two guys here. We've got a minion now. Come on in so we can pray. And my father-in-law just sort of laughed and says, My son-in-law, because I wasn't a believer at that point. But one of the things that they had every year was a Christmas tree. Now this family goes to synagogue and all that kind of stuff. And what they did is they called it a Hanukkah bush. But it was a Christmas tree. So they decorated their house for the season. And that's part of saying we belong. We're not dangerous. We're okay. We're not fanatics. You don't need to come and go after us because we're part of your culture. So what people do is they assimilate, and that's what churches do. They also assimilate. Because remember, one of the churches in Revelation, he says, I know where you are. You're in the seat of Satan. 
In other words, the place where you live is Satan's town. Don't assimilate. And by the way, you're going to have some people who won't assimilate and they'll be your overcomers. So one of the things that I saw on that day was a graphic illustration of what has happened to the church in the United States. That's what I saw with all those overt displays of religiosity. You had a disconnect. You had a party and a movement. Remember I said they're, they're communists, they're socialists, fascists, whatever flavor of you want to do. All of that is in opposition to what the Torah says, what the Word of God says. But you have this overt display of religion in conjunction with the installation of people who are against the teachings. That goes back to Israel. Remember when Israel finally goes into apostasy and God has it right up to here. One of the things that the Israelites do is say, we're going to be okay because we got the temple of the Lord right there. God won't let anything happen. The temple of the Lord is right there. We're safe. It's going to be okay. And God says, eh, no. <laughs> What's going to happen? So you're seeing the same thing happen here. And we've been going through uh, Micah on Tuesday night. And one of the things that you've seen in Micah is that the glaring parallels between what went on in Israel at that time and what's going on today. That's the nice thing about prophecy. People don't change. Human nature doesn't change. So the things that happen to those societies, we can recognize when they are happening to our society. That's why we read prophecy in Scripture. So, last Shabbat, I talked about what I call food for thought. Well, actually, I didn't do it. A guy named Cam Cameron did, who I told you about. He's a physical therapy guy. And his comment was, and I think it's correct, the things that you dwell on in your mind have an effect on your physical body. So if you are dwelling and thinking on good, positive thoughts, what happens is your glands release an endorphin drip. And you stand up straight and you sort of look good and you got a smile on your face and you walk with a bounce in your step and everything is really good. When you are dwelling on negative, fearful thoughts, what your endocrine system does is gives you an adrenaline drip. And adrenaline is really useful. You need it if you're going to fight with somebody or you're going to run away. But it is not good as a constant drip. So if you have constant negative thoughts, you wind up having this adrenaline drip and you start doing this, and you sort of sag, and your joints close up, and your countenance changes, and so forth. This is all based on what your thoughts dwell on. This is just anatomy. It's nothing weird. That's the way we are. So, as I was listening to all your prayers, as I started off, a bunch of grumpy people. And what being grumpy does, if you keep it up, being grumpy for 20 minutes is just fine. Everybody does. But if you live grumpy, it's going to wind up destroying your health. And it's going to wind up having you be ineffective. So what I want to talk to you now is confidence. Confidence, belief, and faith are sort of related. 
But as I'm fond of saying, they're not the same because they're spelled differently. So let's start with belief. Belief is mental acceptance of something as true. That's what belief is. I believe that car is red out there. Now, if it drives off, I believe it's going to stay red unless it goes through a paint booth. In other words, my mind accepts that as a fact. When Israel goes into exile, they do not lose their belief in God. They still believe in God. So belief is important, but it's not what we're looking at here. The next one is faith. And faith has several meanings. The first one, of course, is being true to a person or cause. In other words, I faithfully execute the duties of my office, whatever they are. That's one meaning of the word faith. It's also acting based on belief. The example I've used many, many times, and you've all probably tired of it, is I could walk over to this chair and I say, I believe that chair is going to hold me up. And so I do this and, ha, praise God, my faith has been vindicated. In other words, faith is what enables you to act because you only live in the present. All you got is the present right now. What's going to happen a minute from now, you actually don't know. So faith allows you to act based on your belief and move through time. The last one is confidence. And confidence is trust, especially in the face of fear. So I am confident, and by the way, if I get my thoughts and feelings going right so that I've got an endorphin drip going instead of an adrenaline drip, my body will show my confidence. What I am suggesting to you as we're going through these difficult times, and I'm not going to tell you that times aren't going to be difficult. Certainly looks like they will be. But one of the things that you need to have is confidence. And you need to have confidence based on who you are and your position in the kingdom of God and your position in the family. Let me give you an example. Every generation struggles with confidence. So take the generation in the wilderness. You can see their struggles with confidence. They've got the very presence of God on the mountain, and everybody's listening to the word of God, and then 40 days later they're dancing naked around a golden calf because Moses has gone up to the mountain, and they don't know where this guy is. And here we are out in the desert all by ourselves. Is God with us anymore? And what are we going to do? Same with the sin of the spies. Is God going to be with us? What are we going to do? And I want to give you a little vignette. It's from Scripture, from the book of Daniel. You all remember, and I'll use their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are three Jewish companions of Daniel. They are righteous young men. And Nebuchadnezzar gets a wild hair and decides, I'm going to set up an image. And furthermore, when the church organ goes off, I want everybody to turn from where they are, fall down, and worship this image. And oh, by the way, 
That's one of the characteristics of totalitarian governments. They want everybody to worship the same. They want your spiritual life as well as just your physical obedience. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't do it. So their political rivals went to Nebuchadnezzar and said, these guys aren't doing what you told them to do. So I'm in Daniel 3.13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in raging fury, ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought. So those men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them and said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my God or worship the statue of gold that I have set up? Now, if you are ready to fall down and worship the statue that I have made, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, zither, lyre, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all other types of instruments, well and good. But if you will not worship, you shall at once be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace, and which God is there that can save you from my power? First thing to notice is Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really want to do this. If Nebuchadnezzar really wanted to do this, we wouldn't have this conversation going on in the throne room. We'd have just had some guards scoop those guys up and dump them in the trash. The fact that they've been brought in there is evidence that he's trying to get these guys to go along. Notice that he says, what God is there that can save you from my power? I've got your body right here. I've got the furnace over there. And if I decide that your body is going into the furnace, there ain't anything any God can do. So, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said in reply to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, that's old-timey Bible speak for, O king, pound sand. That's what they're saying. I would say it more graphically, as they probably meant it, but you understand what's going on. They say, we're not going to answer you in this. And they're you know, standing in front of the king. So, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. For if so it must be, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will save us from your power. But... Even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the statue of the God that you have set up. That's confidence in the face of fear. They know what their relationship is to God. They know who they are. They know who their family is, the family of God. And what they're saying is, O king, Go pound sand, because we're not going to change. And, of course, you all know the story. They get thrown into the furnace and are walking around talking to a fourth person there and never go, whoa. So it turns out to be a great witness. By the way, the same thing happens to Daniel with the lion's den. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice here. Thing number one is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not go out looking for trouble. When the king put up the idol, they didn't march into the throne room and say, 
away with your idol, O king. We're never going to worship that thing. Bah! No. They got ratted out. They were not looking for trouble. And when Daniel, by the way, has the same thing happen, he just goes and does what he does every day, which is opens his window, prays toward Jerusalem. Somebody else rats him out. So as you're going about things in these United States right now, in an environment that you're not happy about, don't look for trouble. You don't need to look for trouble. If God needs you to be in trouble, he'll arrange it. So you don't need to go out and look for trouble. That's sort of the first thing that you can get from this vignette. If trouble finds you, then what you want to be is confident. Confident in who you are, confident in the promises of God, confidence in the family that you're a member of, which is the family of God. And again, notice that God did not prevent these guys from being thrown into the furnace. He did not prevent Daniel from being thrown into the lion's den. That didn't happen. Now, my personal belief, for a witness to the king, he then saved him out of the fire and he then saved Daniel out of the lion's den. I think that was not for Daniel or the three men's benefit. I think that was for the benefit of the king. So you may be used for the benefit of the king or you may become a crispy critter. Because remember, God doesn't promise you personal safety. He promises you that you get out of this alive, which is to say when your life on earth ends, you will be in his kingdom with him. Very different promise. And what he's asking you to do is be confident as you go through this life. Stand up. Be bold. Somebody asks you for your opinion. Give it to them straight. All those kinds of things. But as I say, you don't need to run around looking for tigers to poke in the eye. If God needs you to poke a tiger in the eye, he'll provide the tiger. Don't worry about it. It's an old preacher's aphorism. I don't remember who it was. Some radio preacher I listened to, and it isn't original with me. What he said was, there are a whole lot of decisions I don't have to make in life because I made the big decision to follow God. And when I made the big decision to follow God, a whole lot of daily decisions got taken off my plate. I no longer have to decide not to murder somebody. I no longer have to decide not to commit adultery. There's all sorts of decisions that I don't have to make anymore because I made the decision to follow God, as have you. So as you go through your life, one of the things that the world is going to try and do is present you with difficult choices. And just understand that many of those are really non-choices for you because you have already made the big decision. And so the small decisions are now made for you. You made those back when you made the commitment. And the final thing, speak with confidence to those who are lost and afraid. And there are lots of them out there. They are lost, they're afraid, they're uncertain, don't know where to turn, 
going along, as much of the church is, going along for safety or not to cause problems or so forth. You run into those folks. Your confidence will be attractive. You know, one of the things that is often said is a tool for evangelism is people come up to you and say, I want what you have, whatever that is. You've heard that. It's an old preacher's thing. And what they don't want is what someone with an adrenaline drip has who is walking around like this all the time and grumpy and sad because things aren't going her way. Why would anybody want that? What you want is the endorphin drip going as you're thinking positive thoughts and you're thinking about what am I going to do to make my little corner of the world better? And if you go through it that way, then you will be attractive, and then people will start to want what you have. Did I say that's all good sense? Good.